0: Good afternoon and good evening to the rest of you guys. We are back with another episode of Bitcoin Magazine Live. I am your fearless host, Q, coming to you from my mother's basement. And I am joined now by uh, my colleague, the Taco Pleb master himself, and recently engaged Bitcoin magaziner, Casey. How are you doing, man?
1: I mean, I'm doing great. I did get recently engaged, but y'all already know I'm married to the game. All right. Plebs only. Uh yeah. We're, we're all about this. All right. So it's not going to slow us down at all. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I'm excited for Miami Q. What about you?
0: Dude, I I literally sent a text to my girlfriend being like, I need to go shopping for Miami clothes. I don't think my wardrobe is, is enough. So we're, we're gonna, we're gonna rock out the bling shout out to uh Lord Eric Norris. He's going to wear a speedo and a gold chain at sound money fest. And if you want to see that in person, use code YTMag to get 10% off of all of your conference tickets. We're 14 days out from industry day, guys. 14 days out until the doors open. It's kind of nuts. Uh Casey, how you feeling? When when are you getting to Miami?
1: Uh, I am getting there the fourth. Uh, so it's even closer than 14 days for us to to arrive and touch down. Dude, Sound Money Fest. I'm my mind's blown that we're even doing that. I'm super excited. I'm gonna be raging. I don't know about y'all, but yeah, Sound Money Fest, can't wait for it, dude.
0: Dude, come come party with us. Come party with me, Chris and Casey at Sound Money Fest. I'm literally going to try to have my face melt off. So shout out to those who actually understand and know what I'm talking about. But until that day comes, we're going to have a new episode of Meet the Taco Plebs. Casey, I'm going to let you take it away.
1: Yes. Excellent episode today, guys. I've got a excellent guest, um, really a, a great member of the community. And uh, I mean, welcome to the show, Seed Signer.
2: Hey, glad to be here. on on with you.
1: Absolutely. Great to have you. Um, I mean, before we jump into your project, everything that's been going on, um, would you just introduce yourself, talk about how you first got into Bitcoin?
2: Right. So um, I'm currently just like a stay-at-home dad, (laughs) like literally driving kids to school and picking them up and taking them to soccer games and stuff. But uh, I've been a Bitcoiner since about 2013. And uh, I probably found my way into Bitcoin in one of the more unique kinds of uh, uh, stories. So I'm to tell you a little bit more about myself. I'm a retired police officer. I was a cop for 15 years. And um, the majority of that time I, I spent in a forensic lab in a digital forensic unit being uh, an examiner and working on uh, different kinds of investigations. And in it was either in late 2012 or early 2013 there was another examiner at the lab who was working on a case where there was a, a local kid who had gotten what was apparently like a really nice gaming uh, desktop for his birthday or Christmas or something like that. And this is kind of still in the area where you could mine Bitcoin with GPUs. And he, instead of you know, playing whatever the game was at the time, was uh, mining Bitcoin and then buying weed on the Silk Road. And having it shipped to his doorstep, and he would break it into smaller packages, take it to school, and he was making like a, a tidy little hustle from this. <clears throat> not, excuse me, not an investigation that I worked on, but um, that kind of like brought the word Bitcoin into uh, my mind. And so I started Googling it, and there, there weren't a ton of resources at, at the time. Found myself, like found my way to Bitcoin Talk, and didn't make sense to me at first. Like they say people have to have more than one touch point with it, but uh, a few months later I started reading about it again and, and it started to make a little bit more sense. And I was at a point in my life where I was kind of actively, you know, got young kids looking for investable assets. And those so that was kind of the first angle from which I viewed Bitcoin as like maybe it's this kind of speculative technology that could grow, you know, maybe could grow over time. But that was uh that was kind of my journey into Bitcoin. <clears throat> and I continued on with uh a career in law enforcement until um I believe it was 2019, and uh, after 15 years in, I stepped out and was blessed to be able to focus on staying at home with the kids, but I love to have projects, I love to have things I'm working on, and so I kind of quickly became more focused on Bitcoin um, in terms of seeing what I would be able to potentially possibly contribute to the space with kind of my unique uh, background, unique skill set, so that's generally about where I'm at.
1: I mean, uh, 2013, that's a long time ago. And in the Bitcoin verse, it's like forever ago, definitely a different um, landscape for Bitcoin back then. And it's funny that your first touch point is kind of like the opposite end of, of what everyone, I mean, I've talked to a lot of people on Meet the Plebs who are like, oh yeah, my first touch point was buying drugs or my friend, you know, bought drugs. Uh, but you're like the opposite end. And you're like, yeah, I was watching this kid sell drugs <laughs> through Bitcoin. <laughs> so that's funny. Um, and I mean, you've, You've certainly been contributing to the community. Let's talk about your, your seed signer project. And this is a, it's an open source project. So before we dive into the actual project, could you just quickly explain what open source software is and why it's significant?
2: Right. Open source software, um, for me is really the essence of humans leveraging the internet to collaborate with one another. Um, since the internet is kind of this non-physical medium, but as our, as our society becomes more technological, like there's more and more value in the code that, uh, drives and influences so much of our lives. And so like open source is people doing good and working with others to do good, to like solve problems and make people's lives better. I I think that's
1: hundred percent. And for those of you who don't know, Bitcoin is an open source project. Uh, that's, that's why we're all here. So, um, uh, Let's let's move forward with with the seed signer. Could you explain what the seed signer project is and why plebs should be interested?
2: Right. So seed signer is uh, there's a few different ways I can approach describing it, but at a very high level, it uh, allows people to basically build a device that does the same things as a hardware wallet, with one super important exception, and that is while most hardware wallets store your private keys, seed signer is what's called a stateless device. So when you power it on, it doesn't remember anything from prior use. So it is not designed to remember your private key. Every time you turn it on, it's kind of like um, you have to input a key and start working with it. But in terms of being able to generate private keys and set up you know, a wallet to receive Bitcoin and then make actual spends, uh, Seed Signer helps people do all of that. Um, and it's built with, of course, free and open source software. And then hardware uh, components that are just off the shelf computer parts that people can kind of discreetly buy themselves and uh, put together in the privacy of their homes. So that's, I think, another uh, significant part of the value proposition with with the way we approach it.
1: Definitely. So why, you know, could you quickly explain why plebs might want to consider doing this project? Uh, you know, creating their own sort of stateless device versus just going and buying, you know, another uh, pre-built hardware device online?
2: Right. There's um, kind of three main components to the value proposition of Seed Center. I think one is that it's off-the-shelf components and you can build it privately if you choose to do that. Two is that it's stateless. So this is kind of a new model when it comes to uh, Bitcoin wallets and private keys. Um, It it forces Bitcoiners to think about how they're storing their private key, where they're storing their private key, whether or not they're leveraging multi-sig, different aspects like that. And then there's also the air gap component. So part of my background in digital forensics um, means that I'm kind of aware of the different things that can go right and maybe go wrong when you connect physically one computing device to another device. So our model kind of leverages uh, air gap QR exchange using an onboard camera, as well as, you know, a camera and a screen on your laptop to avoid having, you know, a, a USB connection between the two devices. So those... Three things are kind of like the unique value proposition of seed signer. but another kind of timely aspect of this is we've just seen over this week uh, some kind of like third party marketing email disclosures that um, have uh, uh, leaked some people's information. There are different opinions on whether or not you know, the, the severity of the leak is what it is. Um, but if if you are, you know, a very private person, you don't want to provide, your personal information, even if it's kind of pseudonym information, like a, a, a disposable email address or, you know, even a shipping address. If you don't want to provide any of that to a company that is explicitly operating in Bitcoin and you want to be able to save Bitcoin and spend Bitcoin yourself, we kind of uh, provide the ability to do that. But another unique aspect of it is, and this is kind of how we came onto the Human Rights Foundation's radar, Um seed signer for people who are operating in a little bit more adversarial environment who uh, maybe Bitcoin is discouraged or maybe an outright banned in their part of the world. Uh, It lets them build a more secure way to interact and save with Bitcoin without signaling to anyone that they're, uh, they're doing so.
1: Touch on, on two points there that I think a lot of Western Bitcoiners might take for granted. And that's um, the privacy aspect and the actual ability to to create your own device like that, which um, again, I think we take for granted, but the privacy aspect is certainly interesting because as you said, how timely it is, right? Um, I think uh, a lot of us take these other uh, centralized services or not even necessarily centralized, but they just have to use external parties, external um, services that could get compromised. And uh, no one's, you know, intending to leak their information, but regardless uh, of, like you said, using pseudonymous uh, information, et cetera, it's possible that that just by purchasing things online, you can really get a lot of your data leaked out there. So I think it's incredibly interesting and part of a big reason why plebs are compelled by this project, that uh, you can basically create your own device without any of that information needing to be put on the internet. Not to mention, as you said, the human rights aspect of it, which is that Even in countries where they say it's illegal to sell hardware devices, et cetera, um, people can still create and access these these sort of stateless devices and and interact with Bitcoin on their own. Uh, And the best part of it is that they can use materials which are usually easily accessible. And uh, I mean, I think this is why people are so interested in this project, because it has various uh, components of the Bitcoin ethos really baked into the project itself.
2: Right. And that's kind of how I found myself, like found my way to it was um, to tell you a little bit more about my backstory in 2017. um, When Bitcoin's kind of going through growing pains and we had the fork wars and everything, the the amount of Bitcoin that I accumulated had started to approach a substantial value. And it got to the point where we would have the ability, my wife and I to pay off our home and live like a new kind of like fresh start debt-free life. And I'm watching, you know, uh, b cash splitting off and all this you know arguments over the miners and the protocol and stuff and like to make a long story short like i had paper hands sold everything super blessed like we did start a new debt free life and that that enabled some amazing things for me but after that i had a lot of guilt and a lot of regret one because i didn't make off very well like i sold in early 2017 and the price kept just going up and up and up so for a while I didn't want to hear about Bitcoin. I didn't want to think about it. Like, I just wanted to take a break. But um, as I you know, stepped away from work, uh, it's like what are the, the joke in the mob movies, like they pull you right back in. And I found myself starting to listen to the same podcasts and following the same people on Twitter. But this time I was approaching Bitcoin from a much more ideological perspective, seeing what was going on in the financial system with the accumulating national debt, and i started to think about bitcoin from a different perspective and i started you know to reaccumulate as well and seed center came from my experiences as i was reaccumulating wanting to find a more secure way to store my bitcoin because honestly i think like not having a great storage setup that i was confident in played uh, a part in my paper hands incident so i was trying to solve problems for myself but i'm also trying to help the larger bitcoin ecosystem to uh, think more about how they're storing Bitcoin and to be more confident in uh, the storage setup that they choose and, and how they're managing their stack over time.
1: Absolutely. I think, you know, it takes exper- uh, Bitcoiners who have experienced, mm-hmm. you know, times like 2017 and the fork wars, etc., to really see the holes in the industry and and seek to plug them, basically. I'm curious, what is your uh, ultimate vision or goal for this project? Do you see SeedSigner you know, sort of being like a worldwide thing where uh, many people use this? Do you see it as being more like privacy-oriented? What, what's your ultimate goal with this project?
2: So I, I, I do see it as privacy-oriented, but I also see it as uh, us working on something larger than just the privacy aspect of it. Um, part of what I was talking about when... I was you know, conceiving and, and working with other developers to make design decisions on SeedSigner. Um, we, we make decisions with multi-sig first. Um, you can use sig- SeedSigner as a, uh, a single signature setup, but we are built with multi-sig in mind and we're built with long-term holding and long-term storage in mind. I always tell people that if you're kind of making uh, more frequent spends and you're kind of, you have a, a certain stack of Bitcoin that you're more actively sending out, we may not be the right project for you because we kind of create some additional safeguards in place and and add like, you know, there's always this security convenience trade-off and we tend to err more on the side of security rather than convenience. So uh, I encourage people to think of Bitcoin in terms of like, you know, what you'd carry in your wallet, then maybe what you keep in your checkbook and then maybe what you have in terms of a long-term savings account. And we are more oriented towards that long-term savings account but I also have to be realistic that, you know, right now <clears throat> you, you have to, you know, find a Raspberry Pi, which unfortunately right now are harder to find. And then um, you have to find these kind of other obscure electronic components and be the kind of person who's going to sit in your home and put those together and figure out the right way to do it and such. Um, so long term, you know, we always intend to support DIY, but I think long term, um, I'm hoping we can find some sort of. Uh, retail mechanism to where we can support the open source side of things because we can talk more about this. But um, supporting open source development is, is, is kind of a tricky task these days in terms of being able to incentivize developers and, and keep them interested and, and enthusiastic about working on things. So I'm recognizing that not everybody is a DIYer. Maybe, um, you know, if we can leverage some of the insights we have from Seed Center, we can come up with a retail product that we can use to get more people into multi-sig in a way that they're comfortable with in a way that's intuitive to them and also support the uh, the DIY side of things. I mean, I, I attended the the Human Rights Foundation's Oslo Freedom Forum last year and it was an eye-opening experience and probably an aspect of Seed Center that wasn't as much on my radar prior to that. So um, we're committed to DIY and discrete builds like kind of in the long term, but we have to figure out a way to get all the pieces of the puzzle to work together. A
1: hundred percent just to dive, dive in that a little bit. Are you sort of describing that there might be two separate forms of seed signer? One in which is more DIY oriented, as you said, and then one that almost takes scalability into account a bit more and ease of use.
2: Right. But we want to think about that. And just to uh, kind of, this isn't something we're working on intently right now. We're focused on the DIY side and kind of refining the model of what we're doing, but looking forward to the future. Like I want to think creatively about some of these things. We're very committed to open source. You know, if we design uh, a retail focused device, like we want everything to be out there, including, you know, any circuit board designs or architecture notes, or, or of course, all the software to be fully out there and open source. And honestly for something that's a stateless device, like it, it doesn't make sense to do anything that's remotely closed sourced. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of like the long-term vision. have a lot of things we're excited about in the short term, um, but uh, I, I think I lost track of your original question. Yeah,
1: no, I mean, uh, well, if you want to touch on some of those things that you're excited about in the short term, I'd love to hear whatever you could share with us.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, people who follow the project have probably seen over the last few weeks, we've been doing some uh, what we're calling pre-releases of a major upgrade to our user interface and our underlying code structure. Um, I need to uh, give a huge shout out to Keith Mukai and another developer named Nick, who are kind of the two lead developers right now on our project. Keith is taking the lead on this um, new user interface that actually another member of the community who that's his day job. He he focuses on user interface design and he's been very generous with his time and attention in terms of helping us thinking, think about user flows, thinking about how um, less technical users approach the device and what sorts of uh, visuals and iconography and wording and workflows can be more intuitive to people. But anyhow, so we've been coming out with these pre-releases that are kind of giving people who are excited about it a peek behind the curtain and uh, also an extremely important part of it. They're helping us test and find bugs and make sure that when we do the ultimate full release, like it's, it's going to be a a great um, upgrade that is working properly and adds a lot of value to people. So we had the second of those pre-releases last week over the next week or two, we're going to be rolling out the, the th- third and final pre-release. And then once we're confident that we have things where they need to be and that there aren't outstanding bugs or anything like that, we'll be releasing what will be our 0.5.0 uh, release out into the wild. And, and that alone is going to be a huge upgrade that I think is going to incentivize even more people to take a deeper look at the project And it transformed SeedSigner from kind of this quirky, almost DOS-based user interface that I came up with when I was first tinkering with it, to much more of a polished consumer device experience that people are more familiar with. And I think it's gonna incentivize a lot of people who might've been on the fence as to whether it was something they were curious about to take the plunge and find the parts and build one themselves. Beyond that, what I'm excited for is <clears throat> some other technological developments beyond that. Um, we should be able to implement multi-language support relatively soon thereafter. Keith has actually led the charge with Spectre Desktop and been the person who is kind of the point man coordinating their uh, push into multi-language support. So he has uh, a sense of the roadmap, and we think it's it's going to be very reasonable to implement multi-language support to get you know, people other parts of the world interacting with this device in their native language, not, you know, trying to do it with English. Um, And then we're also, we have some other security enhancements. There's a a member of our community who's got some Linux admin skills and he's been working on a, a uh, build root implementation of a custom OS for us. That's going to open some interesting possibilities Um, right now with a, it being a stateless device, you write your software um, to what is a memory card, and then you install install that. I just realized I haven't like really even described kind of the the components that go into a seed signer. So I, I can go into that for a sec if it makes sense. But I'll let you. Please kind of...
1: No, go ahead. It'd be interesting to hear.
2: Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> the kind of secret sauce in seed signer is a very specific version of the Raspberry Pi a single board computer called a Zero version one point three. And the most important thing about that 01.3 is that it does not have Wi-Fi or Bluetooth technology built into it. So it's, it's kind of this very naturally air-gapped, isolated machine. And when you pair that, we put uh, an LCD hat, which is basically just a screen and some thumb controls that you'd find on like a, a Game Boy or a handheld gaming device. Uh, we take <clears throat> the display and controls, put that on top of the Raspberry Pi, and then we add a camera to it. The way you get the software on the device is you download either um, a prebuilt image that we put out that, you know, has an attest- attestation signature and a verification hash that you can use to verify it's coming from me. Or we're also very enthusiastic about people building the software themselves from source. And we put a lot of effort into uh, putting together instructions to let as many people do that as, uh, as may want to. But anyhow, you get this software onto a micro SD card. And a lot of people are familiar with Raspberry Pis. You insert the uh, memory card in the device, power it on. It takes about 45 seconds to boot because it has a whole Linux operating system that's spinning up under the hood. Once it, uh, once the UI comes up, there's no delays. It's very smooth. And um, <clears throat> you can start interacting with the device. But we realized that there's some trust that comes into play in terms of when you power on this device and you're using it to create private keys. And then every time you want to make uh, a spend or set up a wallet. You're going to have to import private keys into it. People may have, you know, some reservations in the back of their mind that, you know, is my private key somehow um, making it onto that memory card. Um, and even though this is an air gap device, like, you know, what what if, you know, through some sort of mechanism, it's coming out of the memory card. What I'm getting at is with this custom Linux OS implementation that a, a member of the community is working on. Is after you power Seed Center on, you're going to be able to remove the memory card, and that kind of gives users one more kind of level of assurance when they're working with Seed Center. They don't have to worry about their seed leaking onto a memory card or otherwise leaving the device, because literally the only way it has to communicate with the outside world is the screen and the onboard camera. So we use this um, this animated uh, QR exchange process as a way of communicating with a laptop that has a piece of software like Spectre Desktop or Sparrow Wallet on it, or even a mobile phone that has software like Blue Wallet on it, or um, we're, we're rolling out support for Nunchuck as well. Um, we're doing great things for like multi-sig coordinating. And so you use the camera and the screen on your phone or computer and the camera and the screen on Seed Signer to pass these animated QRs back and forth. And it's kind of a, a very intuitive way for people to understand air gapping and information that's being passed uh, back and forth between devices. Of course, people can't natively see QRs and understand um, you know, what's encoded in those QRs, but the workflow is such that you know, the first step when you want to make a spend is you draft a transaction on your laptop, and you have to input all the various uh, inputs that go into a transaction like you know, the destination address you want to send to, the fee you want to include, which PS, uh, sorry, which um, uns- UTXOs you want to include in a transaction and such. And then your computer converts that into QRs that you then read onto the seed signer. And then seed signer interprets those and shows you, you know, where the spend's going, how much you're spending, what the fee is going to be, which PSBTs it's coming from and such. And then you can either approve or deny. So it's a very manual, kind of like hands on experience for users that I think gives them some clarity on how the uh, seed signer is kind of this isolated device that interacts with this keys, with, with your private keys. And the coordinator, Sparrow, Spectre, Glue Wallet, they're kind of this device that is more focused on interacting with the protocol. And there's this very clear separation between those two kind of systems and that's what the, the air gap QR exchange kind of experience accentuates.
1: Definitely. Uh, yeah, no, I think <clears throat> everything you speak to basically talks about how the seed signer is this explicit representation of this, the various like intricacies of Bitcoin, right? Sending that transaction, signing them. Uh, I think like Bitcoin can be very uh, uh, intimidating to people in terms of all the different aspects of it, like multi-sig uh, and, and just, how how we uh, approach these things i think like seed signer is a simplification of all that in terms of being able to handle it in your hands see the different steps go one by uh, one and i think uh i think like as you were describing the various uh, updates that you're looking for including the ui the language accessibility etc uh it's it's only gonna get you know you're taking a rather complex system making it into a simple device and then it's only going to get better over time uh, and more accessible to users. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think really it's a, it's an ingenious device and, and kudos to both you Keith and and everyone who's been involved in this project so far.
2: Yeah. I I appreciate that. And it's, I, I always cringe a little bit when, you know, I'm on Twitter talking about multi-sig or I hear other people talking about multi-sig and people say it's just too complex and the average user, you know, isn't going to be able to do it. Like, that, that hurts my heart a little bit because if multi-sig is too complex as people approach it, um, then us, the people who are building things are doing something wrong. Like this is something that you have the right inputs and, and have the tools uh, working properly and, and signaling, you know, what's going on to people properly. Like I, I think multi-sig is within most, if not everyone's reach. And I, that's a, a big part of the mission with what we're doing. I, I appreciate your, uh, your comment
1: hundred percent. And I think that's true for a lot of aspects of Bitcoin, right? Like even the idea of what a private and public key pair is, is kind of difficult for many people to wrap their minds around if they've never encountered the topic before. But seeing it represented through hardware devices or on software, it's so much easier for people to understand. Uh, but yeah, I 100% agree. I think it's our job as Bitcoiners, as the Bitcoin community, and especially the designers of products to really take these what might seem like complicated uh, instances and just show how simple they can be when, when given the right user interface pivoting here though, a little bit, I want to ask you about other projects, not seed signer that you're interested in or that you find compelling in the Bitcoin industry today.
2: Um, the the thing that always comes to mind is what uh, Ben Ark is doing with, I think it's LNPOS. And uh, if I'm, you know, grokking it correctly, that's lightning point of sale. my, my past hobbies and like attempts at, at creating businesses. I had a very small vending business with a few soda machines out there and such vending is such an interesting, like I used to operate even these uh, quarter operated candy machines that you'll see in like pizza parlors and such, where you put in a quarter, you get a gumball or a few M&Ms or something. And I had a few of those machines in the back of my mind. I'm like, inflation is going to basically render this machine useless pretty soon because I'm not going to be able to cover my costs with, you know, a quarter going into the device and it's going to cost too much to upgrade them to take like two or three quarters to operate them and stuff. So it's, it's always been a problem that's been in the back of my mind. This like for people who are operating businesses like vending businesses, where it's humans interacting with machines, you know, obviously credit cards have come into those hugely, but like Bitcoin should be perfectly uh, suited for that task being a digital native, you know, way to exchange value and when I first saw some of his experiments with simple vending machines and the, the point of sale like that was something that really resonated with me and got me excited about I'm generally excited about a lot of things uh, with regard to lightning um, when you focus so much on what you're working on and one aspect of bitcoins a lot uh, Bitcoin a lot of things tend to fade into the background so I'm admittedly behind on probably some of the latest stuff in privacy the latest stuff in lightning and, and all that kind of uh, other things. So every once in a while, I get an opportunity to catch up and get excited. I'm, I'm excited for the node implementations that bring lightning to much more of a plug and play experience. I think builders can do a lot to mitigate the complication or maybe I should say obscure the complication associated with channel management and such and you know provisioning liquidity and onboarding onto the lightning network. And I'm excited to see some of that automated to where you spin up a node and you give it access to some sats and it finds, you know, the best, the best channels to open in the right amounts and such. I, I think that's a big opportunity. Um, and kind of like uh, another thing I'm really hoping we make some strides in that I'm admittedly myself not as up on is fungibility. I think that's critical for Bitcoin to move forward as a censorship resistant store of value and means of exchange we can't have certain parts of the bitcoin network like cordoned off as tainted coins or um kyc or non-kyc or such we we really need to find more fungibility solutions you know probably on layers above uh layer one but I, i i pay attention to anything happening with fungibility it's so so important for bitcoin
1: um, certainly. I mean, let's let's talk about that just a little <clears throat> bit. Um, are you sort of thinking about like how centralized the sort of large mining institutions are getting? Or are you thinking more along the lines of like uh, exchanges having a lot of power? I'm, I'm curious, you know, who do you see as the the main actors behind this fungibility, and, and whose responsibility is it? You know, is the, is it the Bitcoin community at large to sort of advocate for this continuing fungibility uh, and, and censorship resistance, or, or just curious what your thoughts are on it?
2: I mean, I think ultimately it comes down to the Bitcoin community's responsibility because we're the ones that you know are incentivized to make fungibility um, solutions ubiquitous. So we're incentivized to build the tools and then to create. The onboarding, or the education, or the guidance, or whatever it takes to get people using them consistently, I don't worry about miners so much. Um, I think mining at home is a great way to get Bitcoin that um, hasn't gone through any sort of KYC process. <clears throat> but uh, I mean the 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 new coin issuance that is coming onto the network via mining is obviously diminishing as time goes on. So um, that as a way of getting private Bitcoin into people's hands. I don't think it's ever going to die. It's going to continue to be important. But in terms of the mining industry, I see it having a diminishing impact. I worry about like the, the I don't know the exact number of Bitcoin that was seized. I guess it was a month ago or something by the couple in New York who had over a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin that was uh, acquired by federal investigators. I worry about <clears throat> if the U S government decides to auction that, like, you know, a lot of people, in the kind of more investment side of the Bitcoin space, represent those as quote pristine Bitcoin because their their history has been cleansed and they've gone through the hands of the U.S. government, and so like they're more investable and maybe even worth more than other Bitcoin. I think that's an extremely dangerous idea, and that's something we we all need to work on tools to to mitigate that, so that uh, like I kind of initially said, you know, Bitcoin that goes from your hands to mine. Goes in such a way that these chain analysis companies, you know, are thwarted, and there's there's really no meaningful way to say where that Bitcoin's been or like who's used it in the past. Like that's uh, otherwise we fall into this trap with all the central bank digital currencies and like you know people. This this came out in Wasabi last week. Now that like the their flagship uh, collaborative, um, what do they call it? Collaborative spending or whatever tool. I'm trying to use my words right here, but basically like they're going to be KYCing um spends as they're coming into the service. And that's exactly like what we don't want to see from a service like that. So um, I think we'll get there. It's just, there's going to be some pain along the way and we're going to have to have really smart people. People who are smarter than me um, who are figuring it out.
1: Yeah. I mean, you, you're discussing the, uh, the coordinator issue with Wasabi, uh, which is, uh, you know, they've decided to censor certain UTXOs. Um, do you see these, uh, you know, join implementations and other privacy measures, uh, do you see that as like this sort of antithesis to the chain analysis that you described could, you know, potentially uh, harm the fungibility of Bitcoin as we know it today?
2: Yeah, I, I'm not in deep enough to understanding uh, collaborative spends and CoinJoin and how that works to really give an informed opinion about whether or not that is the ultimate roadmap for Bitcoin fungibility. Maybe over time, you know, it's not just one thing it's, it's uh networks like liquid that are part of the solution. It's layer two solutions like lightning. Um, and maybe the combination of all of these factors is what renders uh, companies like chain analysis ineffective at being able to practice their art. I, I We just, we have to get there. That's, that's. I don't think any of us want a Bitcoin that has certain lumps of coins uh, cordoned off as, you know, blessed or untouchable or anything like that.
1: I, I think at that point, we would have lost, we, we would have lost Bitcoin as, as we know it. Right. Um, you know, little pivot here again. Is there any advice that you would want to give to others looking to create open source projects or just projects in general in the Bitcoin community? Uh,
2: put in the work and interact with others in good faith. And most importantly, uh, try as best you can to communicate your vision to other people because there are other people out there and it sounds crazy, but there are other people out there who are almost waiting to help you if you have a good idea and you're willing to put in the work. Um, but you have to be good at communicating your vision and sharing, you know, what you're willing to do to get there. I think that's, uh, that's probably an underrated skill, but this has been really an incredible journey for me as seed signer um, with seed signer as seed signers. I'm not the best marketing person having kind of like had my pseudonym also be the name of the project, but uh, I was just a guy who has, you know, obviously I have a technical background you know, I've, I've, I've spent the better part of a career in digital forensics and there's technical aspects to that, but I'm not a coder. I had to sit down on Udemy and, you know, watch uh, Python for Beginners videos for a couple of weeks before I felt like I knew what I needed to know to create just the most basic proof of concept version of SeedSigner that um, had really just basic rudimentary uh, functionality. And then, by virtue of me being able to create that, you know, barely working proof of concept and put a few videos out there, people who are much talented, uh, much more talented programmers. You know, our collaborator, Nick, was the first guy to jump on board. He's not a Python native programmer. He's, he is a programmer by trade, but it's not his first language. He jumped in and said, like, I think you're onto something here, um, but your spaghetti code isn't going to cut it. <laughs> and uh, he knew a lot more about programmatic convention and, um, you know, being able to efficiently leverage code against hardware and such like that. And he kind of rewrote what I had done, and we collaborated. And then from there, Keith came in, who is a Python native, and has knowledge of even more sophisticated, uh, you know, ways to structure code and create efficiencies and was brought some really refreshing ideas. So it's my journey with seed Center has just been like, put your head down, like do the work, put in the time and then share with other people what you're working on, why you think it's valuable and like magical things can happen. Like I went from, you know, a guy who was stumbling through a presentation about seed center in the Foss last year to being invited as a speaker to to uh, uh, the Bitcoin conference this year, and um, it's just a, it's a testimony to the meritocracy that is Bitcoin. And um, you know, people pay attention to good ideas, and people are out there waiting to help you. That's that'd be my message.
1: Hundred percent, I agree with your message. Mm-hmm. Uh, good faith, proof of work, and then sharing your vision is the most excellent way to get your your work seen in the Bitcoin community. And the Bitcoin community is is excellent at coming together to work on these projects. You mentioned that you're speaking at at Bitcoin 2022. We're so happy to have you there. I want to ask you what you're most excited for at the conference because it is coming up on us quick.
2: Yeah, just uh, I, I already alluded that I fall behind on, you know, other technologies in Bitcoin. So I am looking forward to that like two or three days of just concentrated hearing from builders and talking to other people, building things and, hearing about the exciting things that are happening in bitcoin that that's uh, i'm going to be nerding out for a few days pretty much
1: yes everyone by the way watching this should come nerd out with seed signer come watch his presentation and all the other great announcements we're doing there you can get uh, 10% off your tickets with code ytmag by the way so if y'all haven't got your tickets time is running out it's only going to get more expensive i think so it's just got to get it now man got to get it now ytmag but uh, yeah, I mean, it'll be excellent to have you there at SeedSigner. I'm, I'm very much the same way. I'm always got my head in these, uh, in these articles. So it's difficult to keep up with like the technical uh, aspects of Bitcoin, which is always in development, always changing. So I'm excited to, to spend some time talking to people there. I'm curious if, if you could speak to any single person at Bitcoin 2022, have a conversation with them, uh, who would you speak to and, and what would you discuss?
2: Oof, uh, that's a good one. I would like to talk to Jack with Block about what we're working on. Um, I'm excited about what they're working on in terms of a mass appeal hardware wallet that's going to help people. Um, that's going to help people self custody Bitcoin in an intuitive and secure way. Hopefully, uh, as they make different design decisions. I think I have some unique insights as a former law enforcement officer and also, frankly, as a law enforcement officer who came up during a very interesting time during kind of the digital age. Like when I first started doing digital forensics, like we had flip phones. It was like when you were texting, you were pushing the eight button four times to get a T, like very rudimentary. And I got to see the smartphone evolve and I got to see... Federal agencies uh, mostly ignoring what was being done with smartphones and um, the different security mechanisms that were being added to smartphones until um, authorities realized that there was information that was crucial in investigations and crucial to national security interests from a more U.S.-centric point of view. Um, and I, I, I'm nervous that as these hardware wallets come out, I mean, Apple and Samsung have huge Security spend budgets. And yet the US government is still able to get into a lot of Apple and Samsung phones when they need to. And I think that if Bitcoin grows like we hope and think it's going to, I think um, the design decisions that are going to go into these hardware wallets uh, need to really be kind of agonized over. And I think ultimately we're going to need to put more trust in multi signature use, more trust in like BIP39. Passphrase use rather than trust and secure elements. Um, I think we're going to have to make um, some real careful decisions about how, how people use Bitcoin storage, how they interact with it, and that back to that wallet checkbook savings account and what you choose for your checkbook, where a hardware wallet may make sense. Maybe you don't choose that for your long term stash because you want to take a little different security posture. So, anyhow, back to your original question, I would love to talk to him and provide maybe some of my insights, uh, given my unique kind of background. And uh, also kind of just throw out there like, people can make the best hardware wallet in the world, but people in Iran and people in China may not be able to buy it. So these DIY hardware solutions are really important. Maybe they don't have you know the, the wide ranging impact that a huge consumer wallet's gonna have, but um, I think they have a super high impact in terms of supporting dissidents and supporting people who, frankly, are you know victims of their government's manipulation of currency and losing value through monetary inflation. Um, the best retail-produced hardware wallet isn't going to reach the far corners of the world, and we, we need to support people with DIY options as well. So I'll jump off my soapbox, but I, I appreciate the opportunity to say that. No,
1: 100%. I mean, I love what you say at the end there. Um, I love the humanitarian lean that this project has. I'm, I'm in big support of that. Um, and I'm also 100% in agreement with what you said about security. It, it really needs to be uh, the, the at the forefront of Bitcoin developers' minds going forward. Luckily, if there's anyone I trust to agonize over security, it's Bitcoiners. So hopefully, hopefully, you know, we can continue with, uh, you know, cryptographic solutions that, that help protect the privacy and security of everyone. We got to wrap up here with, with meet the plebs, but I I do want to leave you. Is there anything you would like to say to the world that you have not been, you know, able to say yet or any questions that I haven't asked that you would like me to have asked?
2: No, no. I'll I'll just throw out kind of ways for people to interact with the project if, if they're interested to, um, I, over the last month or two, have put out an independent custody guide and it is um, hosted in a GitHub repo and it's intended to be kind of a living document as we incorporate some of our insights and evolving information into, and I, I welcome polls to it. But you can find our project at seedsigner.com. I was super lucky to get the domain, so we, uh, we try to leverage it. Um, if you uh, DuckDuckGo or Google SeedSigner GitHub, you can find our repo. I am on both Twitter and Telegram just as at SeedSigner. But I'd urge people, if they're curious about the project, we've we've put a lot of thought into that independent custody guide. And it explains a lot of the strategic design decisions we've made as the project has evolved. So I'd encourage people to check that out if they're curious to learn more.
1: Then everyone should check out the SeedSigner project. And most importantly, y'all should come uh, see him speak at Bitcoin 2022. Uh, so thanks thanks for joining me seed signer you've had some awesome insights and it's been great talking to you
2: yeah thanks so much for having me